2: Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today, and thank you.
3: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food, you <laughs> If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. And if you are a regular listener to Heritage Radio Network, it's important that I remind you, if you're not a member already, that you should go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and become a member. We produce more than 35 shows a week out of our shipping container behind Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and uh, all of the hosts, like myself, are volunteers, so Please help us keep this on the air. Today's theme supporting markets across the world. We buy tons of goods that come from other countries. In fact, there are only a handful of countries that we in the United States don't trade with. In many cases, we're aware that these trade relationships are more beneficial to us in the form of cheap goods and aren't really that good for the home country. Pollution, low wages, poor working conditions, and a generally predatory relationship of the companies that make and sell the goods on the country and population where the items are made create sort of a A cultural deficit, I would say. In recent years, we're seeing more and more companies work to change that trend. In my own memory, it starts in the 80s with the movement to save the rainforest. Whatever happened to that, anyway? Well, I'll have to cover that on a different show. I remember selling lots of rainforest crunch through my school to raise money to buy land so that it couldn't be clear-cut. We now have lots of buzzwords like transparency, ethical sourcing, locally made, and more. Some companies are really doing this good work, while others are just riding the wave. Sometimes it's hard to tell who is who. My guest today is Renee Dunn. She's the founder of Amazi Foods, a company that sources and makes fruit-based products, working directly with farmers in Uganda to produce plantain chips, jackfruit chews, and papaya strips. They're not just buying these products and remarketing them. They're working with and sometimes creating the supply chain to bring these products to the enormous market here in the United States. Thanks, Renee, for joining me by phone today.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
3: So tell me a little bit about uh, why Uganda? What brought you to Uganda? You grew up in Maryland, right?
4: Yes, yeah, they're far away <laughs> um, so why Uganda is kind of a two part question. Um one is my personal connection there. I um studied abroad and did my thesis research in Uganda um, and that's more or less where the idea for Amazi came from um and that's how I developed sort of my personal connection to the country. Um, I was researching the local entrepreneurship scene there, and just noticed a huge mismatch between you know the resources available and um the opportunity for more local industry um and which brings me to the second reason why Uganda um Uganda is simultaneously ranked as the second largest producer of organic produce in the world and they also have one of the highest uh, levels of early stage entrepreneurship in the world. Hmm. But they're ranked among the lowest um, on the global entrepreneurship index. So I think out of like 137 countries, they're number like 131. Wow. <laughs> and that's because they have a very low um, productivity rate. Right. So while a lot of people are you know, incredible business people, like many of them have several businesses at once most businesses are not built to grow and they're not built to innovate or hire um, in the way that we think of business here. Um, and that's partially because, and you alluded to this in your intro, um, what we see a lot of the times with even with ethical sourcing is that we might be you know, creating sustainable relationships with farmers, for example, at the resource level but there's no um, local ownership of the production processes. Hmm. Um, so the idea to sort of have that industry side of things, like the actual food production and the creation of the final product is usually um, extracted from right. that economy. So that's, I, that's what I was inspired by, and that's why Uganda, and hopefully one day we'll, <laughs> we'll expand to working with other countries as well.
3: Uh, yeah, when I was doing some research for this episode, I came across some statistics that you know Uganda is is one of the you know one of maybe a, a, a dozen or so countries that they predict in the next couple of decades have a real opportunity to kind of move from what we now call third world towards being like a first world country. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, what you were seeing was really like that sort of conflict of there being people who were interested in, you know, creating wealth and sort of doing these different things, but that it wasn't really happening the way it does here.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's definitely a growing local middle class as well. Um, You're seeing a lot, especially in Kampala, you know, the urban center, there's a lot of, you know, Growing, um, growing middle class and growing interest in consumerism and sure. new preferences and new tastes. And, um, you know, I think that we'll see a lot more coming out of the country um, naturally in many spaces um, moving forward. I think that specifically for me, where Amazi came in there is um, – I think that a lot of sort of the existing initiatives to produce in country, so to speak, um, were oftentimes not aligned with the international market. Right. Um, and um, so, for example, there would be government projects that would make fortified maize or would, you know, take oranges from the North and turn them into pulp in mass, uh, mass quantities. And um, there was never really sort of a a booming market for any of those things. And also not much of a differentiating opportunity um, (laughs) for them, you know, they can, we can go anywhere to get (laughs) fortified. And so um, for me, it was kind of like, well, you know, the u s specifically has growing kind of niche preferences yep. um, they're looking for more new and exciting flavors, more products with stories um, everything in the natural food space is really growing again, as you alluded to in the um in the opening you know a lot of it is buzzwords and a lot of it is people actually doing
2: right. <laughs> actually yeah, doing work
4: <laughs> but um but you know to me it was like people in Uganda are never going to think to make a ginger turmeric jackfruit chew. Right. (laughs) Sure. Like, (laughs) but that's our best selling skew, you know, like that's, (laughs) that's what people want. And, um, so to me, it was sort of, we're, we're bridging the gap by, um, sort of introducing what it is might be possible, um, in other markets and, um, sort of showing, the tastes and preferences of this growing space. Um, And my hope and vision is that ultimately down the road, you know, our partners in Uganda might be involved in the product development as well. Like it won't all be us coming to them and telling them, make this, make that. You know, I'm trying to also spur some creativity and some understanding of what opportunities might be out there ultimately.
3: So can you explain a little bit about what the logistics and what the kind of like from product concept to market looks like? For you guys, for I mean, sure. you know, so obviously, as you point out, you know, ginger, turmeric, jackfruit is not something that the Ugandans w- are eating, right? That's not like a traditional Ugandan flavor profile. No. So <laughs> how did you know? How does recipe development work, and then how do you bring that to your partners there, and then how do you do quality control from Washington D.C. with your partners there? Absolutely. Yeah, these are all,
4: these are all great questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. With regards to recipe development, um, it was really just me um, (laughs) thinking of what might taste good. I've always um, been somewhat creative in the kitchen. Uh, I also went through a major, like, Exploring the whole healthy diet space, you know, for a while I was paleo and I've moved away from that, but, um, I think in doing, in exploring that space, I got more familiar with sort of natural ingredients and what kinds of spices and flavors I liked together. Um, and so we don't have any sort of really fancy recipe development process. It was really just, um me being familiar with Ugandan fruits and then thinking about what flavors might taste good with them. And then ultimately just getting in the kitchen and trying them out. Um, so, and, and that process was certainly not glamorous, especially as we first started, um, with our first line of dried and roasted plantain chips, it was essentially like me taking two to three trips upon sort of our inception as a company, um, and just getting in their tiny kitchen, uh, they had a small kitchen sort of attached to the manufacturing facility that we were using. And me and the food scientists would just be in there all day, uh, making batches upon batches of what we thought would work well as a plantain chip recipe. And honestly, it really didn't work well most of the time. Oh, um, wow. So I, I had, I um, have some unpleasant memories of <laughs> recipe development and having to taste everything. Um, but once we finally got a recipe down, uh, it was the way, you know, just overhead you asked a bit about how the supply chain actually works and what that actually looks like. Um, we are in the process of shifting it. Um, but right now the way it works is we found an existing, like I said, a um, – a facility there that was drying fruit and exporting mostly to Europe, but they did export to the U.S. um, uh, for one customer. And um, essentially I had met them at this conference that I went to when I was first starting Amazi and um, looking for partners um and we essentially decided to work together to develop sort of a new product line and a new supply chain so um i went with them on the initial sort of farmer recruiting trips um and what that looked like was we would go and visit um various farming communities mostly in western uganda um but throughout the country um and you know essentially discussing with them um, how a partnership would work, you know, from a volume standpoint, from a pricing standpoint, from a quality standpoint, and, of course, um, you know, what we would offer them in terms of trainings and such, um, because we do train all of our farmers um, in organic farming practices. Um, So those are sort of the initial steps of building the relationships with farmers and over the uh, years what that looks like for me is, you know, I go back to Uganda at least two or three times a year um, and generally it's just really keeping an open dialogue around how we're growing as a business, where we're facing setbacks and, you know, where we need to make adjustments um, so that it's sort of makes its way all the way down to the end of the supply chain and, and on the flip side so that we're always made aware of any issues the farmers are facing, um, and what changes need to be made there. So to me, that's when I talk about transparency and, you know, direct relationships, um, I'm really just talking about like an open business relationship, um, in which both sides stay as informed as possible. And when we hit barriers, or when we hit disconnect in the supply chains, or, or rather, where we hit disconnect in the communication, that's when we know um, it's time—it's <laughs> time to make a change or a shift in the way things are working. So, um, for me, that's sort of like the key thing. Um, I think people kind of uh, romanticize the idea of what it means to like do fair trade or direct trade, or I think oftentimes they're like, Oh, it just means everyone's always happy. And like, everyone's getting great. Um, everyone's making money and everyone's happy. And, and I'm like, yeah, ultimately that's what I'd love for it to look like at the end of the day. But I think what it really means is being fair about the business relationship and being open as things shift and change. And, letting everybody know that there are decisions to make along the way, as opposed to just this is what's happening. Um, or, 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 you know, a lot of, a lot of farming communities, unfortunately in developing countries are used to people coming in and then leaving. Um, and so that's actually been one of the hardest things is building trust. Sure. Um, so sorry, that was kind of a tangent, but all of that is to say we, um, (laughs) we then, um, you know, we work with them to organize the initial farmers groups. I then trained their team on how to make our products. We uh, invested in some, you know, ovens and equipment for the facility. Um, and from there, you know, developed SOP standard operating procedures. Um, we have various quality checkpoints along the way. And um, now um, the way we work now is we import the bulk product, and then we have a final level of quality control on this side, um, and then package it for retail. But our goal is to um, have it packaged fully uh, in Uganda, potentially by the end of this year, which would be amazing, mm. um, because we're shifting to a more direct... Uh, we're, we're building our own facility.
2: Nice. So,
4: uh, yeah, it's really exciting step forward, and it's going to allow us to have much more impact. And again, just like that communication line is going to be so much more direct, um, along the way. So we're looking forward to having that as an added, um, source of supply.
3: I mean, I, I imagine that if you are doing your own packaging at the point of, of manufacturing, that that also would allow you to expand beyond just the U S market. Yes. And then export Um, direct from Uganda to other places. And even I'm one of my follow-up questions was, you know, are your products available? for people in Uganda to purchase currently?
4: Yeah, so currently what we offer on the Uganda market is, I guess, what we call like our discards. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that Americans are picky. Um, (laughs) So um, like anything that is a slightly different color, a little bit softer or like more caramelized than we want it to be, um, those are all sold on the local market. Um, I would love, as I mentioned, you know, and also as you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, I really do think that there is a growing local demand for products like ours. Um, I I do think we'd have to like brand a little bit differently mm-hmm. to suit sure. Ugandan consumers. Um, but that's definitely something that I'd love to have available also um as a more regular offering locally. Um Because I think that also helps, you know, address our mission in um, inspiring more local innovation and maybe inspiring more people to get creative with what kinds of products they can make locally. Um, So, yeah, ultimately, I would love for it to be marketed on the Ugandan market as well.
3: That's awesome. We're going to take yeah. a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today's sponsor is the Tabard Inn, uh, which is actually in DC, where you are now. So when we come back, uh, I would love to talk uh, a little bit uh, about what's sort of coming up in the future beyond your packaging facility in Uganda. Whoa.
1: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardInn.com.
3: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Renee Dunn. She's the founder and owner of Amazi Foods. Uh, they are Working uh, very hard to bring some really great products uh, direct to us from Uganda and doing some really, really good work uh, over there in that space. Before the break, we were talking about some exciting new things in terms of the sort of production process. Um, So right now, you guys are working with three main products, right? You're working with plantains, you're working with jackfruit, and you're working with papaya. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have other things in development, other fruits and or vegetables that you're looking to work with?
4: Yeah. Um, oh, I wish I had the team of 30. <laughs> 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 I, I would love to just come up with new products all the time. Yeah, sure. Um, um, but I actually very early on, even as we were first developing the plantain chips, had thought of making, um, a flower out of jackfruit seeds. Um, and I love this concept, especially because it would sort of make our process a zero waste. Assuming we were to continue, um, you know, processing our jackfruit chews, it would essentially involve using the seeds, um, and turning them into a flower. Um, and in testing that flower, um, it works almost one for one, like regular flour. I'd compare it similarly to, um, you know, uh, tiger nut flour. Sure. Uh, yeah. So... It's, it has that sort of like chestnutty consistency, um very rich in prebiotic fibers um, and resistant starches. It's pretty high in protein as well and it's totally allergy free um, so in terms of you know what the market wants in terms of its buzzwords these days, it certainly uh, fits the bill, but it actually tastes really nice. um I made like I'm not a baker, I'll, I'll say that to start, but <laughs> I, I'm more of a, I like to cook, um, but I did make a few really good things, like uh, I made like a tahini loaf with it, and it's it's super, um, it tastes almost like a bran, or like a, has like a nutty note to it, um, so beyond just being a great allergy-free alternative, it has a really nice flavor to it, so I would love Bring that to market um, someday. I'd also love to, at some point, look into taking our um, jackfruit chews and stuff like a, a step further. Um, I'd love to look into. I usually tell people when I describe the product, um, it's almost like a grown-up fruit roll-up. Hmm. Like it's very uh, sticky and chewy and sweet, um, but it, we have these like more grown-up flavors, like ginger turmeric or chili lime. Um, And I'd love to look into actually making it into a fruit roll-up, you know, keeping the ingredients the same, um, you know, very simple. Um, Right now, it's only jackfruit and spices, and I'd love to keep it that way. But um, if I can get my hands on uh, a good food scientist at some point, (laughs) I would love to look into, you know, actually forming it into um, a sort of fruit roll-up snack.
3: Right. Right. That sound, I mean that, that sounds super cool. I'm not f- super familiar I mean I've had jackfruit but I don't I feel like I don't mm-hmm. see it that much in the US market um, so I think that's you know I think that's very interesting. plantains obviously we do see but as you point out on your site a lot of the plantain chips that you see are either deep fried. In Mm -hmm. kind of cheap oils, um, or sometimes have fillers and things like that in them. Yeah. Um, You know, and then papaya, um, I think, is one of those products that, you know, we think of, and I mean, all of these are, but I think papaya is one of those things where, you know, Americans think of papaya as being a singular thing, even though there are dozens, if not hundreds, of varieties. And so what you're working with is a specific variety of papaya.
4: Yeah. And I think also what's funny is, When people think of dried papaya, and this is similar with our plantain chips too, when people think of dried papaya here, they're thinking of that, like those papaya spears. You know, like they're like emulsified and like put it into like um, mold and then coated in sugar. Yeah, they're candied, really. Yeah. (laughs) So when people see the papaya strips, sometimes they're like, what is that? I'm like, this is papaya. This is one papaya. Um, and it's totally different. It like, it's very tough and almost leathery. Yep. Like, I tell people it's almost like a vegan jerky because papaya is a very um, water-rich fruit. So yep. um, when you dry it out, it's, like, pretty tough. Um, but people are so used to that chewy kind of candy texture that it, it, they're totally not used to having it in the way we make it. And um, the same goes with our plantain chips. Like, <laughs> um ours are just totally different from what's out there Um, and it does take a lot of sort of customer education Um, you know I tell people it's going to be subtly sweet because we use a sweet plantain so that plantain flavor is actually going to come through because it's not coated in grease and salt (laughs) Um, and you know texture wise it's almost like um, it has a heartier crunch to it Um, it's not as like crispy and crumbly as chips are it's more of like a dense, um, uh, crunch to it. So it's definitely a different snacking experience that I I like to think we've converted some people, but, (laughs) um, but it's definitely not your typical, you know,
2: greasy chip option. Right.
3: Right. And I, and I think, I mean, you know, I, I sort of, I, uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, the word snack doesn't seem to appear that often, uh, sort of on your site. And I feel like what you're selling is what people um, think of as a snack, certainly. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, my kids eat a lot of, you know, things like plantain chips, banana chips. My son could live off of dried mango. Uh, you know,
4: if, <laughs> We if, have if, to if hook it. you guys up. I'll send you stuff. Oh, after awesome. <laughs> if,
3: if, if, if I would let him, that's all he would eat. Um, but I definitely, <laughs> like, I look at these flavors and look at what you guys are doing, and I think about how I could use them. I mean, like the, you know, the plantain chips, I look at that, and I don't think I would, you know, I think of like, well, can I just put that on a salad? Like, that's what I want to, you know, absolutely put that on a salad, or like the jackfruit chews. Like, can I mince those up and like cook them in some kind of a like, you know, almost with like uh, wild rice and that and oh, I love that and something like you know, like I'm trying to think about yeah. other, way, other ways to use these oh, I flavors love and textures. No,
2: we've
4: had we've had some people do some really creative stuff. Like um, one of my favorite things that I've seen is somebody made chicken nuggets using our plantain chips as the breadcrumbs. Oh, neat. Like, yeah, they used the salted olive oil plantain chips and ground them up and basically made chicken fingers for their whole family using those. I was like, that's amazing. Um, (laughs) We've also – we definitely had people use the plantain chips like croutons on salads. Um, We have a couple sweeter flavors like – the cocoa plantain chips are m- one of my personal favorites. And I've been told many times that they taste like exactly like breakfast cereal. And uh, to me, they do. So I'll put huh. them in in like um, whatever the, the milk of choice is that day, sure. <laughs> whatever milk option we're using,
2: yeah.
4: um, and just eat them like that. But we have a lot of people put them in their baked goods, uh, put them on their smoothies, put them in granolas. So I kind of love that the fact that we're not just frying them up and throwing them in a bag, you know, it it allows for I think the way we make them allows for much more versatility and creativity on the consumer side as well. So I I like to think that the way we're sort of honoring this as a natural product um, and not adding crazy stuff to it really allows the consumer also to enjoy it however they please. Yeah.
3: So regarding the consumer side, where can people find your products? People can buy them direct from you, and the, the website is amazi Foods, mm-hmm. A-M-A-Z-I foods.com. Um, are you in stores as well?
4: We are in stores. We have the full list of stores on our website. Um, but the easiest thing nationwide for people is Amazon. We're on Amazon Prime. Um, you can find our jackfruit chews and plantain chips there if you just go to amazon.com slash amazi. Um you should be able to find all of our products there.
3: Awesome, and I see on your site that your first store was Glen's Garden Market, and I yes. love, love Glen's Garden Market there.
4: I live like two blocks from there now. I just moved to the neighborhood, and I go there minimum four times a week. That's
3: so awesome. <laughs>
4: I'm like, I, it's my it's my watering hole.
3: Yeah, they're a, wonder, a really great store. So if anybody's in DC, definitely go pick up your Amazi Foods at Glen's Garden Market for sure.
4: Absolutely, thank
3: you. Um, and before we're totally out of time, I understand that you have a story involving a motorcycle accident in Uganda. <laughs> uh, I was doing when I was doing research earlier about Uganda. Um, I read an article that said that it has some of the most dangerous roads and has like yeah. one of the highest accidents. Accident oh my rates god! On it's terrifying.
4: It's quite terrifying. Um, I've seen some scary stuff, but <laughs> yeah, I'll tell it briefly. So I was, as I mentioned, I was studying abroad in Uganda, I think when I was twenty, twenty-one, 21. And um, we had a rule that we were not allowed to ride what they call boda-bodas. So those are basically like the local motorcycle taxis. Um, they're super unsafe. The accidents are you know, like you said, high in numbers and very gruesome and it's just not safe. Um, so I'm actually a very excellent rule follower and I generally, um, I never went on them in Kampala in, you know, the urban center where all those accidents happen, but we happened to be traveling up north um, where I was visiting some friends over Thanksgiving and we had all gone, um out dancing and you know it's a quiet town It's in Gulu um, and one of the only ways to get back at the end of the night was to take one of the motorcycle taxis and um, me thinking that was safer than walking my friend and I got on a boda boda and we're sort of riding back to where we're staying and I see like another motorcycle coming at us in the distance and, you know, it's a wide road. I'm, I don't even think to say anything because I'm like, you know, I don't, it's quiet, it's dark, it's nighttime and their light is on. Like you can very clearly see them, but, um, we end up getting in a head on collision with this other <laughs> motorcycle. Um, and it's like one or two in the morning. It's Yikes. dark. There's like, oh my god (laughs) we're like in a place that we have no idea where we are there's no emergency service or um, you know there's no 911 so we get in this accident and there's just like (laughs) there's blood everywhere and we're freaking out and we're yelling and someone runs in and steals one of the motorcycles and drives away wait someone who wasn't
3: in somebody who wasn't involved who like saw it happen
4: takes the motorcycle so then any other witness um there's sort of like a mob justice mentality so like any other witness that was there is now chasing after this guy who like stole the motorcycle (laughs) instead of attending to (laughs) all the people that are like bleeding in this accident and um ultimately i like pick up my phone and i call (laughs) i call some friends and i was like We're bleeding on the side of the road, and my airtime runs out, which is, um, you know, uh, in like a lot of developing countries, you have to, like, buy your um, phone time in advance. It's not like you're on a network or anything. Um, So then I run out of airtime, (laughs) and essentially what they had to do was track back from the hotel to the, uh, I think it was like a club that we were at or a bar, I don't know, some outing, and um they had to find us with their own motorcycle taxis and then when we got on the back of those and got to this clinic and um the doctor wasn't even there he was like <laughs> it was just we, i i got my stitches done that night um i have now a
2: scar uh
4: on my face right next to my eye on the left side and um The next day I took a bus back to Kampala, you know, just to get it all checked out and everything. And the doctor there was like, who did that? And I was like, the (laughs) doctor in Guru." And he was like, oh my God, that was not a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I was like, what do you mean? Because the guy did such a jagged stitching. He did it, I think, in like three or four stitches. And ultimately this was like an eight-stitch job. So I think he basically just like sewed it up, let me on my way right, right. <laughs> so wow. yeah but I will say that not only does the scar give me some street cred, yeah. um but it I it was really just a, a, one of it was just a learning lesson in you know how lucky we are to sort of have the expectation of emergency treatment and yeah. the sort of urgency around things when, you know, accidents happen. Yep. Whereas a lot of people, and I used to get annoyed by this a lot when I first started working in Uganda. Um, just a big cultural difference is that there's not really as much of a sense of urgency around things. Mm. Um, and I think, here we're really used to getting things quickly more and more so like conveniently. I want yeah. it now. You like yep. respond to me in the next 10 seconds and you get a good rating. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, and that just doesn't exist there. And and while it is frustrating on some levels in terms of doing business, um, I will say that, you know, it, it's, it's also a good lesson in learning where you should, I guess, put that urgency and, and, and when you can learn to like let expectations go a little bit, um, in terms of what we take for granted and, in getting things immediately. Um, I mean, of course I do think that everybody should have more immediate healthcare and in sure. <laughs> an emergency situations. Um, but yeah, to me, that was one of the most striking things. Like when I walk into a hospital and I'm, bleeding everywhere out of my face the fact that the doctor kind of like strolls in and is like hey what's up i'm like well uh i don't know you tell me yeah. so um yeah just a big a big um awakening in that sense
3: well thank thank you for that intense uh, intense story as a, yeah, an, end, yeah. <laughs> an ending to our interview well thanks renee it's been a real pleasure to have you on feast your ears today
4: well, thank you for having me it's been so fun
3: everybody you can check out amazifoods.com for more information and to order some for yourself you can follow on instagram at amazifoods and yeah so everybody should go check that out and like i said if you're in dc glenn's garden market uh is an awesome place to, to go and shop so thanks again renee for joining me
4: thank you have a great one
3: Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at org on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. As a reminder, this is our 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network. We are a non-profit food-focused podcast network, so please go to heritageradionetwork.org donate. There's some really awesome prizes you can get, uh, or I guess gifts with your donation, uh, and help support us. Please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you find it, and you can reach out to me if you have questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on Instagram or send me messages or whatever at The Food Baller. Talk to you next week.